Hi, this is Linda McGlasson, Managing Editor at Information Security Media Group. We're talking today with Aviva Leighton, Gartner Analyst, about fraud trends. Aviva, what are the key trends that you're focused on in 2010? From a fraud perspective, I see a lot more attacks using social networks as the vectors. So, for example, not just Facebook, um, account takeover, but also different kinds of social networks where users come together, like dating websites, classifieds, games. We're getting calls from um, several companies in those sectors, and there's a lot of takeover happening in those accounts. Also, those accounts are vectors for planning malware on customer PCs. So the use of social networking is a great attack vector for the criminals because it brings together millions of unsuspecting users. Some of the other trends I see is once they get the credentials or account data, the criminals are now focused on cross-channel fraud. That started last year and a little bit in 2008, but they're getting better at it, figuring out how to call call center operators, get their way through accounts, using information that they gather on the Internet to commit different kinds of fraud, whether it's through phone banking or debit card fraud. So the criminals are figuring out how to go about cross-channel fraud. The other thing we're seeing is these crooks are getting really good at what they're doing. So they've been studying these bank websites, and they probably know more about how particular bank security works than many people at the bank themselves. Uh, they basically are mimicking their systems. They know how many seconds it takes for them to prompt a user for an authentication credential. So they've just gotten really good, some of them, at knowing how to penetrate bank security by studying and copying them and figuring out how to socially engineer their customers to uh, get through any of the security controls that are there. So those are um, the, the main trends. There's others, but using social networking as an attack vector, using the credentials stolen for cross-channel fraud, and figuring out how these bank websites work studying them, uh, you know, the criminals are studying them and figuring out exactly how they work and how to penetrate their security. What are your thoughts on strong authentication? I've talked to lots of banks over the past year, and I was surprised to find out just how pervasive attacks on strong authentication are. So in countries, for example, such as in Scandinavia, where they've been using strong two-factor authentication, the criminals have had to circumvent those controls to get into the bank accounts. And they've really done that, and they're starting to do that in the United States, too, when there's two-factor authentication involved. So what do I mean by two-factor authentication? It's basically when the user has a token or something in their hand, most probably it's a one-time password token that generates a new number every 60 seconds. The crooks have figured out how to get through that. And so some banks will react by saying, oh, well, maybe we should use um, a smart card instead or a USB token instead. The bottom line is all these factors are going through the user's browser, and nothing is safe going through the user's browser. 
because the new malware is now sitting inside that browser and is acting on behalf of the user. So you can put a biometric on your PC, you can put smart cards, it doesn't matter as long as it's going through the browser, the, the crooks have figured out how to beat it. What can we learn from the recent Google hack? Would fraud prevention technology help an organization catch or stop this kind of an intrusion? For sure, that's what we can learn from the Google attack. And in fact, I would bet that Google itself had very good fraud prevention technology, which is why more damage wasn't done. Uh, you know, I think they stopped it, although we don't know all the details, pretty early on. But what we did learn is that fraud prevention is really the way to go. You have to have the ability to monitor user behavior, user transactions. One thing we learned from the Google attack is you don't only monitor it, but you have to figure out when to stop it in line real time. And so they wouldn't have had any damage if they had had great fraud detection that was in line doing real time blocking which means you've got to fine-tune it just right so that you know when to stop a transaction without inconveniencing a legitimate user. Now, you can do that through other methods. So, for example, if you see something suspect, you can go to the user over another channel, call them, and say, is this really you trying to access this account? If you want to be very extreme about it, so, for example, if you're monitoring privileged users, which were uh, allegedly involved in the Google attack, you could get a voice print of all your privileged users' um, voices so that when they're trying to access an account and you're suspicious of that activity, you can go back to them, call them, and register the voice print and match it against your database. That's just an example of what you can do. But the lesson to be learned is you definitely have to have fraud prevention, monitoring user behavior and transaction values. So I put them into two buckets. The first bucket is look at the access and navigation. Um, so a botnet behaves very differently than a human being when they're going through web pages. They bring, the botnet will bring the web page into memory much faster. They'll click on buttons much faster. They'll go to the same exact spot on a screen. They don't mouse around because it's all automated. A human being will go much more slowly and deliberately and not as predictably in terms of where they put the mouse or where they click. So good navigational access monitoring can see that it's malware as opposed to a human being. Uh, the other thing that fraud prevention needs to do in the second bucket is look at the transaction values. So for example, is it normal for a user to be transferring this much money to Romania in the middle of the night? And of course, in the Google case, is it normal for a user from this location in this machine to be logging into this email account? Uh, there's lots of rules that you can put around fraud prevention. So the bottom line is fraud prevention is a must these days combined with the ability to block a transaction in real time using technology that won't stop good users, like the voice print recognition, for example. What's your advice for detecting, preventing, and monitoring ACH fraud? Are we missing some basics here? I've been really surprised to hear just how rudimentary some of the banking systems are out there. Uh, it's not that much of a surprise, actually, because many of these smaller banks rely on banking processors, so they haven't kept their fraud prevention up to date. But if you read about some of the cases that have been uncovered, uh, 
Uh, you, you hear about a small business lost money because someone got into their account and transferred money to Romania. Now, this small business is in the Midwest of the United States and has never done any business in Romania. A very rudimentary check would have seen that in the system. So you've got to ask yourself, are these banks asleep at the wheel? I don't think they're asleep at the wheel. I think they've outsourced their fraud prevention to banking processors that have not kept up. So we are missing some basics here. You should put in some basic fraud detection that says if a customer's never moved money to Romania, let's take a closer look. Uh, so many of the banks have been caught off guard, and it's mainly the smaller banks because their banking processors have not kept up to speed. Um, my advice on detecting and preventing money transfer fraud, whether it's ACH or wire transfer, is basically using those techniques we just talked about, monitoring access behavior. How's the user monitoring? Sorry. You monitor access behavior, how the user is navigating the system. Does this look like a machine or a human being? And then you monitor the transaction values. Is it normal for this user to transfer $10,000 to the Ukraine? No, it's not. Let's flag it and go back to the user. Now, that means you probably have to manually review a certain percentage of the transactions, but that's certainly a worthwhile endeavor rather than letting your customers have their accounts rated. So there's some good technology. It just has to be implemented. And more importantly, the business has to be able to support the process. So you can't have alarms going off with no one paying attention to them. You've got to have a core group of staff, whether it's a couple people in a small institution or dozens of people in a large institution that know how to look at these transactions, know how to throttle the, uh, the bar so that they look at the right amount of, of transactions without overwhelming their systems, uh, and they handle what they can handle while reducing fraud to an acceptable level. Aviva, what are some recent developments that financial institutions need to be aware of when it comes to tagging customers' personal computers? There's been some very interesting developments in privacy legislation uh, that is changing the rules so that when customers' PCs are tagged, in other words, when there's a cookie or a data file put on their PC that allows a service provider to follow them around, the new legislation says customers have to be aware of that and they have to opt into it. So they have to say, yes, you can put this flash cookie on my PC and you can follow me from now on. Or you can know that this is me, so next time I log into your website, you won't be so worried. Many banks in the United States rely on flash cookies or browser HTTP cookies to track their customers and know that this is the right person logging into the, the website because we recognize this PC. This new privacy legislation uh, that was recently debated in Canada, it got killed temporarily, but there's, uh, the FTC has made noises that they're following this now. They're looking into it. They're having a series of privacy hearings. The EU, European Union, just updated their rules to uh, promote the opt-in to this type of tracking. So all this legislation, either passed or coming about, means banks need to wean their reliance 
off of cookies. They can't rely on flash cookies anymore to know that this is a good customer or a good customer PC. They've got to use other alternatives, uh, what I call client-less PC identification or any kind of computing device identification. So just to make a long story short, most banks are relying on cookies on customers' PCs to know it's a good customer. That reliance needs to end because of legislation and also because Adobe, that is the software provider for these flash cookies, is releasing new privacy settings uh, in their next version of Adobe that will make it much more transparent to a user when there's flash being downloaded to their PC, but also they'll have the ability to stop it. So now this is all behind the scenes. Most people don't know where their flash cookies are. They don't know how to delete them. In the future, that won't be the case. Anytime flash is being downloaded to your PC, a customer will get this big warning message. Do you want this software to modify your PC or your computer? And chances are they're not going to like that message, and they'll say no. So there are a lot of different technical aspects to this, but the bottom line is banks should be aware of this, these new events, and they should start preparing now to stop their reliance on flash cookies. Final question. Aviva, where do you see the biggest security challenges for banking institutions and their customers in 2010? Well, in some sense, we're just going to see a lot more of the same things we started seeing in 2009. So much more malicious malware, much more targeted attacks against specific bank security systems. And this will just continue to be a big challenge for banking institutions. The smaller banks have a very big challenge in getting their processors that they outsource to to keep their security current. Uh, I don't think the security has stayed up to date in probably seven to 8,000 banks in the United States. It's mainly the top-tier banks that have the resources to keep up with this that have kept up with it um, but to some extent. But the smaller and the regional institutions are really out of date for the most part. So they've got to put pressure on their bank banking processors to upgrade technology. I also think there's going to be some legislative and regulatory challenges. So, for example, if the FTC starts putting pressure on uh, maintaining consumer privacy on desktops like we just talked about, or if Congress ever gets its act together and starts passing some reasonable regulations um, that regulate the way banks provide security or services to their customers. Um, there's a lot of talk in Washington around compliance and regulation of banks, obviously, and that certainly has implications on security spending and how what banks put their money into. So I think there's not going to be any dull moments in 2010 between the hackers continuing to do a lot more and do it better than they did in 2009 and the pressures from Washington uh, just causing banks to spend a lot more on security and compliance. That's one area that's actually growing in their budgets where they're actually hiring people from what I hear. Um, so there's no shortage of challenges in 2010, keeping up with the laws and keeping up with the hackers. Thanks, Aviva, for joining us today. Thanks. You're very kind. I'm Linda McGlasson. 
for Information Security Media Group until later.